Hi, friends. Welcome to the Save What You Love podcast. I'm your host, Mark Titus. Today, I sit down with Guido Rar, the president and CEO of Wild Salmon Center based in Portland, Oregon, which is a nonprofit that has preserved over 3 million acres of salmon habitat across the Pacific Rim, which is incredible. Guido is also the subject of a book called Stronghold, One Man's Quest to Save the World's Wild Salmon, which sounds kind of daunting, but I found actually really empowering thinking about any one of us making the contribution to the great song of saving what we love and having that opportunity and that ability. Mostly out of this interview, what I really got from Guido is his sense of curiosity, which is totally infectious. He's curious about snakes and amphibians and frogs and, of course, our shared love of wild salmon. This curiosity fuels his passion for saving these wild anadromous creatures we love, and I think you're going to find it as fascinating and as infectious as I did. Now, Wild Salmon Center is also one of our primary partners in our upcoming Rocky Mountain Wild event coming up in Boulder, Colorado on October 14th. We're going to have a screening of my documentary, The Wild. We're going to have a wild salmon feast where we're going to be celebrating the current victory for Bristol Bay and looking forward at what it's going to take to really seal the deal and protect Bristol Bay permanently forever. You can get tickets for this event uh, by just going to avaswild.com. That's the word save spelled backwards, wild.com. And it's a live and in-person event in Boulder, um, and I hope to see you there. Anyway, today I hope you enjoy this really wonderful conversation with Guido Rar, and we'll see you down the trail. Welcome. Where are you joining us from today? I'm in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> Fantastic. It, yeah, at our office here in the EcoTrust building, and I'm kind of alone in the office for obvious reasons. I got a couple of my colleagues here, but this is International Center of the Wild Salmon Center. So let's just hover there for a second. Why did you decide to center the Wild Salmon Center, this is a very important uh, organization. Why Why in, in the EcoTrust building? What What's going on there? Well, I mean, I live in Portland. Uh, and when we when, when Pete Sovereil, who created the Wild Salmon Center, and I teamed up as our first employee, we had the, you know, Pete was okay letting me build the organization from Portland, mm-hmm. and which was great. And it's my hometown. And uh, Spencer Beebe is a uh, a, a mentor of mine and a colleague and actually a cousin of mine too. And so when he got this building set up, he gave me a chance to ha- put our office here. And so I was, so it was just a perfect place for us to, to set up. Well, I think it's, um, it is. And, uh, I, I am remiss as we were talking before the show started here that I have never visited yet. Uh, hope to change that soon when things mellow out a little for just a minute. Um, 
but it does seem like such a perfect place to center this work you're doing, uh, surrounded by the work that uh, Spencer and EcoTrust are doing. Um, and it seems to really be around um, protecting the best and restoring the rest and coming up with innovative ways of looking at how to save these wild places that we love. And is that, you know, let's start at the beginning. Mm-hmm. How, tell us your story and tell, tell us how did you fall into this work of saving the things that you love? And, and how do you keep going on it on a day-by-day basis? Those are good questions. Um, well, look, I, I was born in, outside of Portland and, you know, from a family of hunters and fishers you know, and conservationists going back a couple of generations on both sides. But I was really obsessed with reptiles and amphibians as a little boy. And, you know, we lived outside of Portland, kind of in the country. I was one of five, the oldest of five. My parents were, you know, we weren't going to many sports games. It was a, we kind of an unusual family that way. And, but I, and so I grew up be, being very happy being alone, kind mm-hmm. of leaving the chaos of my busy family and wandering around the hills looking for, you know, rubber boas and redback salamanders. And, and if we were in the mountains, tailed frogs and um, all the different species that, and that would completely obsessed me and filled me. I knew all the Latin names of all the species north of uh, central Mexico by the time I was 12. I knew all the down to the species level. And I lived and breathed it. It was my identity. I didn't have a lot of friends. You know, I didn't, you wouldn't see me in the soccer field, you know, but I knew where to find uh, Pacific giant salamanders, you know, and, and it never bothered me. And so it was in my blood and it's still in my blood. And so, so what I learned from my family, it's, you know, it's, I'm sure you've been taught the same thing that, you know, with the privilege Okay, of flipping a rock over and seeing something as beautiful, you know, as a Pacific giant salamander or a rubber boa or a Northwestern garter snake comes with the obligation to fight to protect those things, you know, and the same thing's true of fishing and and hunting. You know, this is why this is a tradition that's gone on for generations. If you you protect what you love and and what the organizing theme for you and your show is fits hand in glove with my belief system, too. You know, I think about um, Norman McLean's book, um, River Runs Through It, and the, uh, the, the phrase that I remember above all else in that is, I am haunted by waters. Yeah. <laughs> it, that, that's something that is a very common thread on this show and, and certainly in the um, cohort that I think we both share. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it for you about rivers? Why rivers? Well, look, I... Th- I think there is a heritable, genetic, deep um, affiliation with water. Okay, so just think about it. Humans have been, I mean, it's been 5,000 years since we left the hunter-gatherer. My ancestors in Germany on my father's side were hunter-gatherers until about five to 7,000 years ago. And in some ways, we still are. I mean, I fully intend to get an, a bull elk if I'm lucky this year, and we'll eat every inch of it, you know, between mm. my boys and I and my, mom, and my wife, Lee. But I believe that we are not so distant from those hunter gatherers and that there's parts of our brain and behavior that come alive, you know, when we have the chance to do that. And the pa- fascination with water, I think it's also true of, you know, other elements in the natural world, it fires neurons and, and makes us feel good and, and, and draws us into that. Now water, 
if you're into small vertebrates like reptiles, amphibians, and fish, water is the, is the center of everything. You know, and I was always drawn to water as a little boy and still am. And that's a combination of all the species that you find with water, but it's also the mystery of what's under the surface. You know, and, and I mean, I, I could spend all day staring into a pool. And, and the mystery, what's glimmering under the surface and what you might find and the endless little secrets that can reveal themselves. I mean, oh my gosh, I could be alone on a, on a river uh, for a week. And I have been. And just every day is like Christmas morning with all kinds of little discoveries. <laughs> what a gift, you know? I mean, really, in, in this world of over, overstimulation and too much information, a lot of it, most of it may be bad. Um, and, uh, this race to the bottom and in various capacities to have that gift of quiet and that gift of completeness in being in a place of singular importance, like a river. Um, I, yeah. I, I think it's can't be understated. I mean, as a dad, you know, I just, I, we have three boys and they're all off in schools right now, which is kind of nice to have a couple, a little bit of quiet time at home, but we are unhealthy as a species and as a people, because we are so disconnected from nature. And a lot of the strange behaviors and ADHD and, and all these things, uh, are part, I believe part of that's because we are not getting enough of that to bathe our senses and our neurons and our heart. And we, we'll be healthier and more stable and maybe more humane. To, to build that back into our lives. I, I think it's a, a real tragedy. And you look at the, the uh, epidemic of obesity and, mm -hmm. and poor health. And, and some of that's, you, we're just bathing ourselves with sugar and depriving ourselves of the kind of stuff that we evolved over many, many, you know, millions of years to do. So I, I do believe that it's good for us and necessary. And our children, who, of course, they're addicted to their devices, all of them, you know, and the devices and the algorithms of the games and stuff are are constantly releasing, I don't know if it's endorphins or serotonin or something in our brains, because they've learned, just like sugar, you know, how to keep pressing the buttons that keep us coming back. So you just got to pry, <laughs> pry the children away from those things. And uh, we have a cabin on the Deschutes. Mm -hmm. And so it's our refuge. It's my home river. And our boys, we go there. There's no uh, TV. And, and, and there's never been internet there, but during COVID we had to fire up the internet just so they could get their schoolwork done. Mm -hmm. But when we go there, they're not online and out come the guitar, out comes the drawing and the paint, you know, out comes reading out loud to each other. Um, obviously we're gone every day hunting chuckers or fishing and you can just see how the, the, the rosy cheeks and the, 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 vibrance and fluorescence of young men, young men and, and happy parents happens without all the electronic uh, detritus and confusing signals that comes. So I'm an evangelist on this topic. So I, I'll, I'll try to edit myself and taper that off. So I don't spend your whole hour talking about that. I, I could, frankly. Um, <laughs> and I am, I am an evangelist in the, of the same ilk and um, I've seen it. And, you know, when folks ask me after doing the films that I've done and um, that, you know, have our shared love of salmon, you, do you still fish for them? Um, like it seems antithetical to, you know, hurt fish or, you know, chase fish or eat fish if, um, if you're trying to save them. And, you know, I, it's a fair question. And I had to think about it for a minute. Um, and the, the fact is that I, I do still fish for them if not for the singular reason of 
connecting and connecting and and sharing that and offering that uh, as the few gifts I, I have to the young people in my life, the nephews and nieces. We have 10 of them. <laughs> and for me, you know, watching those children connect, even if it's just to, to touch a, a salmon, hold the salmon in the water for just a 30 seconds to a minute, you know, and, and see how they come alive and, and how they are different after that. And to then instill that idea of protection and love for this animal so much. So just like the, uh, reptiles and amphibians and fish that you talked about when you were a kid, it's the same thing. And if there's one reason that I still fish it, that's it to, to connect and to pass that connection along to young people. And it sounds like that's exactly what you're experiencing on the dish shoots with your kids. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, we're all catch and release fishermen. Uh, and, and, and of course women, because my wife Lee loves to fish. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely kill fish to eat, not so much trout, but every fall I'll kill, um, a couple fall Chinook that I, I fly fish for fall Chinook. They're wild fish. It's a healthy run. I'll kill a couple of bucks, you know, small male fish, which, which have the best meat. And, um, I do it with gratitude. Any fish that I catch that, that is an amazing fish, especially a big fish. I of course release that, but I'm not against keeping fish and I love to eat fish. So for me, uh, fishing is, um, look, it has many facets, you know, I mean, there's art, there's solace, there's problem solving. I tie flies. I try to, you know, I love the challenge of different fishing situations, but I love eating fish and preparing them in different ways. So I'm somebody who's comfortable killing a fish mm-hmm. uh, if I, as long as I feel like I've, I've respected that fish and the place that it lives and I'm, I'm adding overall. Agreed. And, and that's how I was raised too. Was, um, you, you don't waste the thing. Um, and you have reverence for this, this creature right. that gave its life for you. So that look, we'll, we'll come back to it more than once that, that these wild salmon, how mystical and, um, and, and, and practical, frankly, they are in, in their giving of life, like to the entire ecosystem they come back to, including us, that we, we get the privilege of eating them. And yeah, I'm absolutely the same in terms of, uh, eating these fish. Obviously we, we eat lots of Bristol Bay sockeye. It's a sustainable regenerative run. We know that. Um, and we'll, we'll dig more into, um, why Bristol Bay is so special here in in a Mm -hmm. little bit as well. But First off, um, I, I just want to tell you what a great read uh, "Stronghold" is by your another one of your cousins, Tucker <laughs> Malarkey. You got a lot of cousins, man. Um, and the the title of the book is "Stronghold: One Man's Quest to Save the World's Wild Salmon." You know, at first blush, if you didn't, if I didn't know you and know the work that you do and the people you surround yourself with, and frankly, have the same exact bug of, uh, intense love and obsession with wild salmon, you might think like, wow, that's a, that's a pretty lofty idea. But the fact is when you dig into this book and you look at the work that you've done, this body of work that you've done over the course of your life, it it's, it's not like this grand marquee. It's one step at a time leads to another step at a time leads to another step at a time. And I wonder if you could walk us through that a little bit. Um, how has, how have the unfolding events in your life compelled you to move forward from one thing to the next, to the next in sort of this natural organic kind of way as it's outlined in this fantastic book? Yeah. 
Tucker did a great job with the book, with Stronghold. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I was honored to for her to take interest in me and in the stories. And, uh, you know, I'll say she captured the stories. They, they would have, they could have been lost. You know, I, I, when we started the project, you know, so the way it's, you want me just to digress yeah. over to how the book started Absolutely. because we all, Tucker's family, the Malarkeys, the Rars, we all get together on the Deschutes and the cabins are right next to each other. And we all have Thanksgivings together and sometimes Christmas and there's, we hunt and fish during the day. And then we have great wild game dinners and lots of martinis and a fire in the fireplace and trade stories. And she's, and I'd come back from Russia or different places. And she said, you know, if you don't write this down, I'm going to write it down. And I'm like, oh no, no, I'm going to write it down someday. I'm, I'm sorry. There's no, no way I was going to get into writing it down. She's like, I'm going for it. I'm like, just go. And I just, and, and, uh, it was a collaboration and I, it was kind of scary. I didn't know what was going to happen. It felt like a gamble to me. And I'm, and I, the, the idea was to try to get people beyond the choir, not just the choir, but we're never going to win these battles unless we get more people caring about them. And Tucker was able to write this in a way that reached people that normally we weren't able to touch. And I'm grateful for that. And her story about how she managed to get her message and, and get it through and get it published is incredible. Um, the title's a little misleading uh, because it's not one man's. It's a whole team of people. And our whole model is supporting local conservation groups. I cringe a little bit. In fact, every time I open the book and I see my name, it's like a, it's a little bit strange. Uh, and I'm sure anybody would deal with the same thing. But um, it's not one man. You know, it's the opposite of one man. But um, so how did, how did this unfold, the stronghold strategy? And, mm-hmm. and so it really, so I spent the first part of my career working in the tropics for the Nature Conservancy and then Conservation International and the cloud forests of Mexico. And then I ended up being promoted and ended up in Washington, D.C. And about 1990, I got Willa Nelson's paper uh, with Jim Lukatowicz, and I'm not sure who the third author was, but just saying, we have a five alarm fire with Pacific salmon. Mm-hmm. You know, most, I mean, we, we're dealing with collapses of, of runs across the spectrum. And this was the wake-up call. The paper was called Salmon at the Crossroads. And it was the seminal description of what, what a mess salmon management had become. So I, I decided to come back to Oregon and work on that issue. And uh, there was a little group called Oregon Trout in Portland, like three people. Bill Bakke, who's the guy that started a lot of these fights, and Cal Cole, Jim Myron, and later Jeff Pamplish. And uh, they filed the initial petitions to list salmon under the Endangered Species Act. And so I got to be with this little tiny group helping them and part of that team doing the petitions. And that was like lighting a bomb in the region. I mean, it made the spotted owl look like a, like a pigeon. Mm. Uh, the social economic impact of the salmon declines was just boom. I mean, everybody was like, holy God, you know, here, here it comes. And, but I learned through those battles um, that the Endangered Species Act is critical, but it's kind of like an emergency room. You, you can't have your whole strategy be, be based on when the lights are flashing and the fish are in the emergency room. Mm-hmm. It's like they are with the Endangered Species Act. We need to also have a strategy to find the strong runs and prevent bad things from happening. And that was a very simple concept. And so at Oregon Trout, <clears throat> I developed a strategy. I couldn't get much traction, uh, mostly because just the, the context we were working in. We were the bad guys, you know, with the ESA at the same time. But then I met Pete Soverell from Seattle, and Pete had an organization that didn't have a staff, but had a program in Kamchatka. And I had been over to Russia as one of the first Americans 
in the early 90s with Misha Skopetz. And Pete and I got together and Pete's like, why don't you come on as the executive director? And I said, well, Pete, I've got this big idea. Look at the whole Pacific Rim as one ecosystem. We'll target the centers of abundance and diversity and take a long-term strategy to work in three nations to create a, a network of protected watersheds, strongholds. And I'd seen what happened at Conservation International had done under the leadership of another guy named Peter Seligman, who's just like Spencer. Peter is one of the great figures in international conservation. And they saved biodiversity hotspots, you know, Papua New Guinea, Upper Amazon Basin, you know, Madagascar, Congo. And they'd looked at the 25% of the planet where most of the biodiversity was, and they were able to raise the money and implement conservation. So if they can do that for tropical biodiversity, we've got to be able to do that for, for salmon and salmon ecosystems. So under Pete's uh, partnership, uh, he was chairman, I was CEO. We built the strategy, just basically one grant proposal at a time. And we've just stayed focused on it now for 20 years. And, you know, it takes time to learn how to do durable conservation. So in the conservation business, it's you can raise money and do a project, a great project. It sounds great. But a lot of times, five, six years go by and it's, there's nothing left. You, you can't point to it. If you, you've got, it takes an, another level of thinking and strategy to say everything we do, we want multi-decadal uh, durability. Like we want stuff that's going to be there when we die. Okay, that's different. And that takes, um, and, and so we are extremely determined in the strongholds to do things that are going to keep those systems from declining anymore, right, over decades to come. And so you're, you're right. It was, you know, one step forward, two steps back. We made lots of mistakes. We invested heavily in places and got our ass kicked and regrouped and rethought and then came back. And uh, I'm so grateful. It's really adding up now. I mean, we're up to almost 4 million acres of land in protected status, thousands of river miles, six new national parks, raised over $100 million for conservation. We've worked with local partners to fight off LNG. We're on the good fight on Bristol Bay. We helped stop the Susitna Dam uh, with the local partners in Alaska, and, and it's adding. And so we've shown that the strategy can work. Right? And the strategy uh, is really simple. It's, it's be very specific about geography, target the systems that, that haven't suffered the most damage yet because it'll be less expensive to prevent them from building a dam sometimes than to take one out. Now, of course, we're big advocates for dam removal on the Snake River and the Klamath, for example. But if you can find that window of time to get into a system where the people are still, the salmon is still part of their lives, like Bristol Bay, then you can get the political will to fight off bad things that are coming with well-heeled uh, proponents. And so, so the strategy is simple, secure habitat protection agreements, parks, protected areas, riparian buffers. The second is wild fish management agreements. Okay, it's a whole different package of strategies. And the third is build local organizational capacity. So in the Skeena in British Columbia, mm -hmm. our partner is Skeena Wild. They partner with all the indigenous groups in the basin, not all of them, but most of them. Our job is to support Skeena Wild. Right? We don't need to do, they know what to do. We'll provide the financial, legal, communication support. But it's very different than the model of, the classic model of opening little chapters and putting your brand on it. No, we don't need to be out front. We'll support our local partners and they will fight the hardest. And on the Skeena, they had Petronas, the Malaysian national energy company, wanted to build a massive LNG plant right there at the mouth of the Skeena. 
And Greg worked out with his First Nation partners, and they said, no, not here. <laughs> Petronas had invested a billion dollars, and, and those guys kicked him out of the Skeena. And that's a win. And so, they, so passionate, funded, strategic local groups can prevail against big, scary development projects. Now, we're not against LNG plants, and we're not against gold mining, and we're not against hydro development. But our strategy is very geographically focused. The value proposition is these watersheds are going to be for wild fish and the people that depend upon them and biodiversity. This will be gift, a gift to humankind. Go do it somewhere else. This is a place for that, which is different than fighting these things you know, at a national uh, level. And that's been enabled us to build strong and diverse bases of support because you can't argue with that value proposition. The world needs to have healthy wild salmon ecosystems. So that was a long articulation, Mark, and thank you for your patience on allowing me to do that. I feel like I'm hanging out in the river with your cousin Spencer, uh, honestly. Yeah, yeah, well, that's no coincidence. Yeah, it's not. It's not at all. And uh, honestly, it just, listening to you guys, um, there's there's, um, a real cohesion in, in your thought process. And it's, it's also very intensely practical. And, um, you know, I was thinking about when you were talking about, uh, Jim Likitowicz's book and Dave Montgomery's book, King of Fish, uh, Jim's was Salmon Without Rivers, um, talking about, uh, there have been efforts at the turn of the 20th century. And then, you know, a few smaller efforts as time progressed in the early part of the 20th century to create crazy idea of a salmon stronghold or a, uh, a salmon, um, uh, preserve preserve. And of course it was left out of, you know, society at the time. Why did that fail? And why does this proposition that you are undertaking along with many others, as you so adroitly point out, why is this working now? Well, it's, um, okay, you have to look at that in a national context, right? So I'll start in the Russian Far East. So Russia has mm-hmm. one of the oldest park systems in the world. They've got Zapovietniks and Zakoznics, and they have goals about establishing protected areas in each of the Krai, which are like the states. So our role was to work with the scientists to get the best biological justification to get stronghold rivers into their park system. And that's worked. It's taken a while. It, it, they are in the driver's seat on that. We have a total trust and total collaboration with our Russian scientific and NGO partners. And so that, there it's easy. Uh, it's very straightforward. Not easy, but you, we've gotten whole watersheds in the park system. And in Kamchatka, we got uh, the Coal River, which has got the entire 650,000-acre watershed that has all Pacific salmon species and Asian species occurring together, which is really unusual in one system. And that whole thing's protected headwaters to the ocean. Now, you look at the North America context. Now, in, in British Columbia, a lot of that habitat's protected. Much of the habitat we're working on is in the Great Bear Rainforest. So there's been conservation agreements. And it's, it's because of their land ownership system, it's not as dire. Here, it's very different. Okay, so we have parks and wildlife refuges for waterfowl and large mammals and terrestrial biodiversity, but nobody ever created them for salmon, or very few. And uh, I don't have a perfect answer for that, 
Um, I just think it was just people ha have a hard, I think people didn't understand that salmon function in an ecosystem and an ecosystem is a watershed. And most of the parks and protected areas gravitated towards big mountain landscapes like Yellowstone instead of the, you know, swampy alluvial uh, floodplains that are the biological engines for a lot of salmon rivers. Um, so I, you know, I just don't have a really good answer for you, but uh, it's now getting traction. But we don't have a lot of places left, <laughs> you know, to do that. Right. And you can't get whole watersheds, headwaters to the ocean very easily in North America anymore. I mean, there's just there's too much competition for the resources. Both battle lines are drawn. You, you've got to work at a lower level of granularity, a higher level of granularity. Well, that that's a fantastic segue. Uh, granularity, sing singularity, and you know, when we were talking about the title of the book. Um, Stronghold, one man's quest to save the world's wild salmon. It, I took the flip meaning of it, the inverse meaning of it, in that not in any way was it some sort of a uh, grandiose statement, but rather it was one of an invitation of of something that is hopeful, that one person can make a difference, that anybody can make a difference if they've had an experience that touches them and if there is a desire in their heart to really protect something. I'm going to read just a little quote here from the book. Um, this is from chapter four. And uh, here's the quote. It says, um, you're saying in this book, the only way to save a place is to get people to love it as much as you do. Our plates were empty. Uh, and Guido raised his hand for the check. Quote, and the way to get them to love it is to take them there. And not just for a day, ideally long enough for them to get the same kind of feeling. And then it becomes a part of them, part of their lives. And, and this is a, according to the story that just happened in the book. And if there's a near-death experience, so much the better. <laughs> what do you mean by that, Guido? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't killed anybody yet. Uh, but, <laughs> no, it's, um, you, you know, the, the, Tucker just nailed it. I mean, I... That's all I do. I mean, it's not all I do, but I am, if you, you, if people, you get them waist deep in a river where they spend enough time to take a few deep breaths and witness the miracle, there's, they, they realize, you know, just all of us anglers, people that love rivers realize this is where we want to be and this is what we need to protect for our kids. And you also get a chance to build a relationship and trust with people. And, um, and so it's just fundamental to building support for the protection of places. And um, I, I take that part of the job really seriously. Um, you know, so that's just fundamental. And, and you know, at some point, so at one point, somebody, I think we had a strategic planner or somebody said, oh, Guido, you're just always going on fishing trips. I'm like, yeah, because that's kind of who we are and what we do. I mean, fishing is just the door you open to get on the river. And uh, those, the people that have been on those trips are my friends and partners in conservation 20 years later, almost every single one of them. And they mm -hmm. really, they get it and they understand. And so we're lucky that there's a chance to get people involved in that. Um, and, you know, and then the second half of that that you alluded to is how do you, how do you do it? I mean, you, you just, you have to never give up uh, on once you decide. So there's a miraculous piece of land to the west of here called the Tillamook Rainforest. Mm -hmm. 500,000 acres of state-owned land. 
about five rivers flow out of it, short little rivers that go straight out to the ocean. It just loads up with Chinook salmon in the fall and then winter steelhead all winter long. And then there's spring Chinook in some of the systems uh, and some chum. And I, that's where I fish. And I love that place. It's also a stronghold. And timber is very powerful in Oregon. And we're not against timber harvest, but we're fighting with the timber companies over the fate of this forest because that, that's worth billions of dollars of standing timber. And I don't know how many times people said, you know, you just got to quit fighting this fight. You know, you're never going to win. They control the politics. Um, and, you know, we just stayed with it and stayed with it. And I have a really good team and a guy named Bob Van Dyke, who's leading my team, who's just as obsessed as I am about never giving up on this place. And now we're in a, working on an agreement with the state to set aside r- roughly half of that through a conservation plan. And I'm just so glad we never gave up. And I think you have to decide once you decide your places that you're just never going to give up and have that mindset. And I'm thinking right now about long-term durability and building an immune response in places. You know, look at what happened in Bristol Bay. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it just showed that you, you, you really, these, these places are almost like organisms, you know, with the salmon are almost like the bloodstream. And so mm-hmm. um, we need to have as part of the fabric of those organizations an immune response. Agreed. And, um, they they are. I mean, especially when you fly over Bristol Bay or you spend time in its rivers and in its in its uh, systems, it is a system. It is this. It's perfect the way that it is, and um, we have lost sight of that in the lower forty eight. For the most part, we don't have systems that are, for the most part, like that anymore. And um, and so when you do have one like Bristol Bay, it is worth fighting for you need it's an imperative to fight for it and mm-hmm. clearly uh, as as led by the indigenous folks that have been getting up every single day for the last 30 years and fighting for this place because it's their homeland for millennia um it's it's what we must do you know uh, there, there's no other places like this and this is the spaceship that we live on and there's not another one to replace it um i want to jump back to the book for half a second yeah. And because we're not uh, clearly in, in an hour here, we're not going to be able to get into all of the adventures and misadventures. There are many, it's an incredible read and, uh, in, inside of the book here, but, um, I do want to at least dive into the spark of how you got embroiled and, and fascinated with, with Russia. And, um, and so here it's, uh, on page 90 of the book, it says, as Guido remembered it, Zarkov's brief report sat inside him like a stick of dynamite. When the doors to the Russian Far East finally opened, Guido got out the map. Kamchatka was the first major landmass on the other side of the Aleutian Islands. It was a huge peninsula, perhaps bigger than California. Wow. But you didn't know the first thing about it. Nor do most of us. <laughs> so what was that stick of dynamite? And what what happened after those first lights went off for you? Well, this was up in the early 90s. I think it was 1991. I was just about to go to grad school. And um, I was really, I knew I had, I was just obsessed with trying to catch the giant Chinook. I want to catch the biggest Chinook ever on a fly. I spent a lot of time on the Kenai, by the way, at the mouth of the Moose River. And I uh, got my ass kicked by some big fish. And that was amazing. But I got a uh, letter from a guy named Gennady Zarkov. Um, who I still can communicate with, and we do, who's now uh, uh, the chair, uh, I believe he's the chair of the Russian Salmon Fund, a group that we helped create in Moscow. 
But anyway, Gennady sent me a letter about 126 pound Chinook they caught in the Bolshaya in West Kamchatka. Wow. And so I thought, and Russia was just opening up. And, and so um, a colleague of mine, a grad, it was in grad school with me, Margaret Williams, who, who's a great hero in the conservation field. Margaret said, you know, there's someone you should meet named um, Mikhail Skopets, Dr. Skopets, who's a field scientist from the Russian Far East. And Zarkov said the same thing. And so Misha and I hooked up, and Misha is really the Russian's Far East first fly fisher. He was making uh, fly lines out of like a hollowed out, you know, electrical cord and then putting monofilament line inside of plastic oh, electrical wow. cord. He was making his own fly rods. He was tying his own flies. And he and I started, this was in the internet, was just getting going. We had some kind of crackly phone calls, but we agreed I was going to come over there and meet him. And Skopets is his own story. I mean, this guy is like the Indiana Jones, the Russian Far East. You know, I mean, he he heard a rumor from some, some geologists at one point about a meteor crater in Siberia that had strange fish. And he tra- tracked up there. He always travels alone, you know, in bear countries. He's got some serious uh, lack of fear. And uh, ended up all the way in, on this meteor crater called Lake Ilgigitin, where, which is only ice-free for two months out of the year. And mm-hmm. in it, he found a race of giant char that he caught. And in the stomachs of these giant char, which were their own species, he found the bones of another species of char that would, turned out to be not just a new species, but a new genus of char, oh Salvithemus. And Scopets collected in the crystal clear waters of this thing, one of the greatest discoveries of all time in the world of salmon taxonomy. Anyway, he's a badass scientist and fisherman. And so I went over to Kamchatka with Misha and then Magadan, and we started exploring the rivers together. I learned so much from Misha. Uh, He's the real thing. And uh, he traveled to the Russian. He comes from a very educated family of musicians uh, from Moscow. And uh, the Russians are extremely passionate about uh, music and math and education and um and they, they really emphasized that for their children. And that was no, Misha was no exception, but he got a hold of Jack London books and that brought him to the Russian Far East, which is Terra Incognita at that time. So Skopets and I fished and then Misha, uh, we then asked him to start exploring rivers to find out which were the most important strongholds. And then Misha started sending reports back. Guido, you wouldn't believe, you know, I just got off a river. I've been on it for three weeks floating, never saw a human being Let's talk about the fi- the fish. You know, amazing. So that keg of dynamite was a realization that um, really the last great salmon and steelhead rivers are in the Russian Far East. We know today that it's half of the world's salmon production. Kamchatka is like twenty percent. Going over there is like going into a time machine. It's mm-hmm. like going back in time. And we can. I've been over there with Likatowich, Jack Stanford, many of the scientists we both know, and we've had a chance with our Russian colleagues. And with this ushered in uh, over a decade of exploration. So there was a window of time in Russia where we could do all kinds of things with our Russians before the geopolitics became so an, uh, antagonistic. Mm-hmm. But we floated rivers. And from those rivers, we were able to understand what we've lost here. And we published a couple of dozen scientific papers over the years with the Russians. And uh, it's been a remarkable partnership and revealed remarkable things. Uh, on salmon ecosystem conservation. Well, look, the just the uh, chapters alone about uh, floating the rivers, um, the Krutogorva, 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 <laughs> <laughs> the 
Thanks. It was a, it was a noble, noble attempt, but, um, th- boy, that is harrowing and exhilarating and freaking crazy. Um, and it's worth reading the entire book just, just for those chapters. But I want to talk a little bit about, um, working with people and, um, we are, as you said, in a very polarized time and, uh, no more so, uh, uh, anywhere else on the planet than, than here in the United States of America. Um, and you mentioned, uh, Pete Soverell earlier, uh, who lived up here in Washington. Um, and I know that he brought you on early into wild salmon center and you guys had different styles of leadership and yet you found a way forward that propelled this work forward. So with that as sort of a, a backdrop, how have you found the ability to work with other people that have varying styles, varying viewpoints, um, varying interests, and still keep the ship moving forward in the direction of creating strongholds? Yeah, that's a great question. So Pete, uh, listen, Pete, Pete is a former Navy captain uh, with an illustrious career of leadership since he was at the Vietnam War as a young man. I learned a lot about leadership from Pete. And... Um, over time, I, I, you know, the organization really, you know, I raised, um, you know, the money and built the board under Pete's uh, partnership and tut- tutelage. But eventually just, we just, we reached the point where it was really, really mostly my organization. And, and Pete then w- formed his own organization, which is now the, uh, called the Conservation Angler, which is a terrific group. But Pete was an honor to work with him, and he is one of the true greats uh, in conservation. But his style is quite different from, say, Spencer Beebe. Uh, Pete is more command and control. There's good guys and bad guys, and you know you, you don't back down, and you call them out. And, and he's very comfortable with, you know, with risk, but he's a brilliant guy in the field. And... Um, so, so, so how to deal, listen, how to deal with different people and get them to believe in what we believe and move the ship forward. I, I mean, I think that's fundamental. So I guess my, the rules of, of me and my organization are just starting with the science. Okay. There needs to be a foundation and bedrock and kind of a common language. So that's takes us a little bit less away from the more value laden, uh, propositions and more just what do we have to do based on the, you know, the science, we really try to have that be the the starting point for where we work, what we do, and if we succeeded in doing it. Now, implementing that takes a, a, it's a different spectrum of, of uh, social and political dynamics. What is the common denominator that people have that we need, the people that I've been able to recruit is a deep commitment and passion for the fish and the river and that we've been effective working on the democratic side and the republican side and it's been hard to do that in this polarized political environment i mean this last administration i feel like really polarized things but we have very passionate republicans that are completely unequivocally opposed to the development of salmon strongholds and we'll do whatever it takes and the same on the democratic side and our board reflects both of those sides and we all get together and we fish and we go to the river and we work on our conservation plans and the political arguments stay off the table and it's worked for us, knock on wood. And so that was quite helpful in the last round on Pebble to be able to have people from both sides of the aisle to stand up and say, it doesn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat, this is about a national treasure. I was just going to say, you know, Bristol Bay and the, the fight 
um, against the development of the pebble mine and its headwaters is such an incredible example of people coming together, disparate voices that have had competitive interests in the past. So as anybody from the Pacific Northwest, and I frankly anywhere around the world or the country that is involved with fish or fisheries, there's competing interests. There's sport fishermen. There, there are uh, commercial fishermen and women. There are uh, the tribal interests. There are land development interests. And, um, you know, pretty much everybody coalesced together in Bristol Bay. I mean, we're talking about 80% of the residents of Bristol Bay, 62% of Alaskans came together and said, this is not a good idea. Um, and what, what we know is that this system works perfectly the way that it is and that it will continue to keep working that way if we leave it, unlike everything else that's been touched and sullied, the way that it is. What do you feel like are the best key takeaways we can, we can pull from these decades of intense and arduous and blood, sweat, and tears fighting <laughs> for, for Bristol Bay, for this sacred place, yeah. and apply to other strongholds that yeah. just as desperately need it? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, and that is the question. Uh, what's it really going to take, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's again, you you can do lots of projects, and it sounds great, but sometimes it feels like you're on a treadmill, you know, holding your your spot and going backwards. And sometimes it's like that anyway. But a clear-eyed view about that question: What's it really going to take? And I don't think you can do it unless the people that live there believe it that it's in their interest and they want to do it. Absolutely. I think um, First Nations, Alaska Natives, Indigenous groups are incredibly powerful in this space and are building more and more power all the time. And then when you combine that with obviously commercial recreational fishermen, the conservation community, and if you can build in the hook and bullets, that's key. Then you build enough uh, enough critical mass so that you have a basically a, such a diverse and, and politically powerful social entity. And because it, it often comes down to raw politics uh, on the protection of places, you know, it's competing interests and who, who's going to win basically. But I think the takeaway from Bristol Bay was those, the local organizations leading, right. And groups like wild salmon center in a support role. That's powerful. That same thing worked on the Skeena. I think it can work more other, other places. Now the Russian context is different. So for the Wild Salmon Center, we really have to be very careful not to work on social organizing, and we don't. We, we, we tread lightly and stick with the science and protected areas establishment and best practices and, and, uh, and some capacity building. But I think, I think it's going to take, if we want any of these strongholds and geographies to persist, it's going to have to be strong local organizations that know what they're doing, have the support they need, and it's built into the local culture. Because the problem is once somebody starts a mining project or, you know, and all that money flows into the watershed, you're in a tougher situation because half of your constituents or your people that you need are getting a paycheck for trashing the watershed and it becomes so much harder. That's why a long range proactive strategy is important. And remember, the stronghold strategy is not a triage strategy. It's just to say, to complement the restoration, we need to work on getting ahead of the curve on these places. Uh, which I, I, I'm sure you understand. So it's um, it's not the total solution. It's an important piece of it. Absolutely, and it's it's fantastic to recognize that that yeah there there are other areas of um, 
intensity and expertise that also need to be addressed. But I think it's brilliant. And um, where are we? Like, if we're going to open up that map of uh, the Pacific Ocean that you that inspired you so greatly, and look at the entirety of the strongholds that are critical to your work, can you walk us through where we're at with the work that Wild Salmon Center is doing and the partners that are on the ground right now? Yeah. So we've been at this 20 years and we've been learning as we go. And now the next 10 years, we're going to focus on establishing a threshold of durability in each of the sites within the network, meaning the three major conservation pieces are are in place, habitat protection agreements, uh, wild fish management agreements, and institutional capacity. And it'll look different, you know, in each place. So there's 18 major strongholds, a stretch from uh, the Russian Far East to Kamchatka. Um, If you can visualize the Pacific Rim, I'll walk you through it. I'm going to walk you through it from the Pacific Northwest and across and just paint this picture quickly. So the last best salmon runs in the lower 48 are in coastal Oregon and Washington and Northern California. Mostly the temperate rainforest zone near the coast. There's less dams and there'll be less of the more dramatic impacts from climate change. And those are our, the rivers right here, the, the ones that I fish, that I'll be fishing tomorrow, <laughs> for example. Mm-hmm. And then as you go north into British Columbia, you reach, your, you're following the great temperate rainforest of British Columbia. There's the Dean, which is many consider a river so special that you drop to your hands and knees and kiss the rocks and and prostrate yourself in gratitude for being in such a beautiful river watershed. I mean, it's everything is perfect in that river basin. Mm. Then we created a group called the Dean River Conservancy to deal with some of the conservation issues that needed to be dealt with. Then you go north to the Skeena, a watershed the size of Switzerland, one of the great undammed salmon rivers left in the world. And then we climb north to the Copper, and then the Susitna in, the, in Alaska, and then, of course, Bristol Bay. And then transport yourself across the swirling and frigid currents of the Bering Sea and out the Aleutia chain until you get to Kamchatka, which is due west of Alaska and almost at the same latitude. And it's a land of volcanoes. There's 30 active volcanoes in Kamchatka, hmm. almost no roads, and it is a salmon producing factory with giant bears and many salmon species. Some of the rivers have, you know, pink chum, coho, sockeye, chinook, Asian masu salmon, steelhead, two species of char, you know, all together in the same watersheds. It's amazing. Kamchatka is like the lost world. And then you extend from Kamchatka east and you hit the Russian Far East mainland due north of Japan. And there we have the the forests are mostly just think about like northern Wisconsin or even Vermont, mixed uh, hardwoods and, and p- Korean pine, super rich terrestrial biodiversity, big sprawling rivers with runs of pink and chum and char. And in these rivers, they have the giant taimen, which is a massive Eurasian trout, an ancient species that looks like a really big bull trout. And these taimen in these rivers, especially the Tagur, grow to be about normal time and growth rates until they get to be about 40 or 50 pounds. And then they get big enough to start feeding on adult salmon. And so each year when the chum runs come in, there's time in that get to be 60, 70, 80, 90, 100, 110 pound time and waiting in the pools for these chum. And I've heard stories about time and pursuing chum across the surface for hundreds of yards. You can, 
that chum is fishing something about as fast as it can. These time and also elite muskrats and other. They're just like Jurassic. It's like Pleistocene megafauna. It's not extinct in the Russian wow. Far East. And then you go south of Habarovsk, and there's Sakhalin Island, which is a salmon, highly productive salmon zone. And then south of that is the Sea of Japan, just across from Hokkaido, Japan. And those rivers have another species of of fish. It's not a taimen. It's, it's a different genus. It's, they call it the sea run taimen, but it's a heavily spotted giant trout that looks like a big brown trout almost, like a sea run brown. They get to be 60 pounds or so. And they are an ancient race of salmonid fish that we still really don't know who they're most related to, but they're very rare. And in those rivers of the Sea of Japan in the Russian Far East, there are moose and elk and um, wolves and grizzly bears and wild boar and Siberian tigers all living together in the same ecosystem with cherry salmon or masu salmon pink salmon, chum salmon, coho salmon, Dolly Varden. And it's just a spectacular landscape. And um, so that is the archipelago of strongholds. It's 121 million acres. It's a vast area. It's about 25% of the world's salmon production. And um, this is the most ambitious international Pacific Rim conservation strategy that's ever been uh, attempted. And um, we may not get all the strongholds past the durability threshold. But we are going to try, and I think we'll succeed. And we're going to give ourselves 10 years to get to that threshold by 2032. And then we'll set up a permanent fund to provide grant support for the local conservation partners. Amazing, Guido. Um, I, I, I just i am full of uh, th- this energy that you're just exuding. I, I, know, I know this love of salmon, um, and, and yet I find a... R- a way to even pour more in with getting your energy from this. Um, thank, thank you for sharing it. And I want to ask and kind of start wrapping things up here. Why salmon? What, what is it about these critters that have just produced this un, unbelievable life's work and, and this, um, this glowing uh, the, the energy that you just fed us with? Well, I mean, the, the salmon, okay. I think there's a biological basis. You know, the first cave art in Europe are images of salmon. I mean, they've been integral to our species, you know, for thousands and th- well, tens of hundreds of thousands of years. So we have an innate connection with that. The second is um, they are a window, right, for us into another world. And it's the hunt. I mean, we, we're waking up old behaviors when we do that, wander around with our fly rods and into the river and be alone. But by chasing that fish, it brings us into a whole new ecosystem and that feeds our heart and our soul. You know, I mean, it's good for us and it's good for the fish. And the third is, I mean, listen, there's no way you asked me earlier how I keep doing this. I mean, it's a blessing to do this. You know, I do it because I mean, I go out on the river, I'm going to spend all day tomorrow um, chasing false Chinook salmon with my fly rod. Uh, maybe I'll catch one. Maybe I won't catch any. That's what keeps my, you know, the, the complete commitment and the, and the, fa- you know, the d- desire to, 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 to prevent bad things to losing it, you know, and as any parent knows, we're doing this for our kids and grandkids and that's the responsibility we have. So it, you know, what fuels the tank is that connection. It's a gift to our species and uh, it's a good fight, you know, and, and, you know, and I will also say, um, you, you got to be comfortable with the fight, you know, cause it's sometimes mm-hmm. you're not fighting, but sometimes you have to, 
And you have to realize that's something that sometimes that's what it takes to save these places. What, what are one, what's one story that um, you want to leave us with today? I mean, there's so many wonderful stories in Stronghold, um, but what maybe is the best example of a, a story that really fed you and kept you going during all of this work and all this fight over all these years? You know, I, oh, that's a, that's a very, um, there's a rich, uh, menu of, 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 of things to talk about. And, but I will just say in the, in 19, uh, about 2000, I was working with the United Nations Development Program and we were searching with a group of Russian scientists for rivers to include in a Kamchatka conservation strategy. And we had a Mi-8 helicopter at our disposal and we flew from river to river to river and got out and did surveys and and gathered information on what species were there and could assess the habitat and the threats. And we landed one day on this river called the Coal. And it was from a, it came out of the mountains and spread itself over a rich floodplain of endless braids and channels and swampy back channels. It was not your classic kind of waterfall canyon, uh, you know, boulder run. It was like a moving swamp. And when we got into that river and started sampling, it was alive with juvenile, with baby fish, just shaking with different species. And all of them had occupied all the different pieces of the watershed. Some of this, and this is what I learned from Jack Stanford, who's a geomorphologist who was with the Flathead Lake Biostation. And Jack was with us on these trips. And being with him, I learned... <laughs> sneaking through, trying to do transects across a river to gather data, following bear trails and vegetation over your head, trying not to have a freaking heart attack because of all the <laughs> giant brown bears that you could smell and hear. And, uh, but it was seeing what a salmon ecosystem does when it's all the pistons are firing. And it's that diversity of habitat complexity, especially in the floodplain, with some little rivulets are crystal clear, and some are swampy and kind of eutrophic, and some are green and some are tannic. And how that beautiful virtuous system functions together, uh, really, you know, it, it just it was an amazing thing to see. And uh, just to have a chance to, to wade around in those waters was a gift I'll never forget. I hope I get to see him with my own eyes. I've, the picture you've painted is exquisite. I think we have I, to plan that. I think we do. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's, you just, you know, you talk about stepping back in time, and that's just, that's just a dream. So, um, with that, Guido, I'm going to um, just send you right into the bonus round here, which everybody does. And uh, here it is. So let's just pretend your house were on fire. And uh, obviously you get your pets and your loved ones out first. But what is the one physical thing you take with you? Oh, gosh. It would have to be the paintings. Hmm. Oh, well. It's either tied between three things. I mean, obviously, my wife and children and my our Brittany Spaniel are safe. Mm -hmm. uh, paintings are something that we have some great family art, you know, kind of hunting motif, <laughs> European art from the Rar family. Um, and there's guns. Uh, and But I'd also be torn between my favorite Bogdan flyreel that is my most precious. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I was waiting oh. for it. Oh. <laughs> Sweet, man. All right. How about two kind of metaphysical things about you, traits about you that make Guido, Guido? What what two things, if you could only take two, would you take out of the fire? Wait, traits about me? 
Mm -hmm. Like your sense of curiosity or those types of things. Oh, well, um, I mean, energy and passion uh, mm -hmm. and my mitochondria are, are important. <laughs> oh, man, <laughs> super important. And those both are apropos. Is there anything that you'd leave in the fire to burn up, be purified? I would learn uh, how to be a better listener. Hmm. Well, you're doing pretty well. And um, I am grateful for uh, your time and this um, chance to, to dig into this mystical creature that we love so much together. And uh, also grateful for Wild Salmon's support of our screening of The Wild in Colorado uh, coming up here. Um, October 14th in Boulder at E-Town. Uh, you can find links to it uh, in our social media uh, links and also on Ava's Wild. But um, thank you so much for stepping up, Guido, and, and supporting this very special screening. And, um, and really, it's a moment of celebration for Bristol Bay and a really sincere and uh, intensive effort to get the job done and permanently protect this place. Um, and, and so thank you so much for, for stepping up and being a partner in that. You know, I'd like to also say um, I, I need to thank and honor uh, my Alaska team, Emily Anderson and Sam Snyder, who have just worked heart and soul day and night uh, and we're so lucky <laughs> to have them working with the United Tribes of Bristol Bay, Bristol Bay Defense Fund. Uh, it's been a great partnership. And I also just want to thank you for your work. And I'm honored to be on your show. And I appreciate that. And so we're not done yet, but we've got no. the summit. Is We can see the summit. That's true. And uh, it, it, it takes all of us. And it takes um, each person individually uh, a quest to save the world's wild salmon. So, Guido Rar, thank you so very much for being on Say What You Love, and we'll see you down the trail. Thank you. How do you say what you love? How do you say what you love? Thank you for listening to Say What You Love. If you like what you're hearing, you can help keep these conversations coming your way by giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. You can check out photos and links from this episode at avaswild.com. While there, you can join our growing community by subscribing to our newsletter. You'll get exclusive offers on wild salmon shipped to your door and notifications about upcoming guests and more great content on the way. That's at avaswild.com. That's the word save spelled backwards, wild.com. This episode was produced by Tyler White and edited by Patrick Troll. Original music was created by Whiskey Class. This podcast is a collaboration between Ava's Wild Stories and Salmon Nation and was recorded on the homelands of the Duwamish people. We'd like to recognize these lands and waters and their significance for the peoples who lived and continue to live in this region, whose practices and spiritualities were and are tied to the land and the water, and whose lives continue to enrich and develop in relationship to the land waters, and other inhabitants today.